That's a worthy use of our time and prayers. Um, well, hello, friends. Uh, turn in your Bible with me to Proverbs chapter 15, please. And thank you for your forced congratulations on my birthday. So thoughtful of you all. I guess I, I guess I come to um, think about birthdays or maybe decades in terms of excuses. I remember when I turned 30, I felt like I had lost a lot of excuses. Like if I did stupid things, I couldn't like blame it on being in my 20s anymore, and felt like I'd lost a bunch that was really precious. But I feel kind of differently at 40. I feel like I've just gained a lot of new excuses. Um, Things that have, like, been off the table for a long time are suddenly, like, back on the table. Like, drooling, totally on the table. (laughs) Um, Speaking my mind, grouchy, all that, kind of, like, without concern for others, that's back on the table. Falling asleep mid-conversation, totally back on the table. I think I can even sleep through my own sermons if I want. So, um, yeah, so I've had a lot of great models in this this room, so thank you guys for (laughs) that. Um, maybe I can even call people out when they're sleeping while I'm preaching by name. I think that's on the table too. So I'm just just a little heads up. Um, but we're continuing in our study of the book of Proverbs. And um, I just want to take a minute. We're somewhere kind of in the middle of looking at the book of Proverbs to, to remind us um, of what Proverbs is and what it is not. And um, this is this is just, this is review for most of us. But Um, By itself, the book of Proverbs is not insight into the way of salvation so much um, as it is insight into living well in the world that God has created. Now, that's not to say that it has nothing to do with our souls because our attitude toward and our pursuit of wisdom has a lot to do with our relationship to God as we read several times in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there's no real way to live well in this world without the Almighty and Holy Creator as our starting point and the lens through which we understand everything else. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, the book of Proverbs is crucial for us. It's a crucial ingredient in our discipleship, right? God's instruction on how to live well in the world that he's created. The the book of Proverbs is far less a collection of rules and commands as it is a collection of statements of fact, reflections on reality. Have you noticed that? This is what's real, Proverbs say. This is how life in this world works. This is the path to life and peace. This is the path to death and sorrow. Statements of fact. In other words, the Proverbs are an invitation to live in light of reality, which is just a really good idea. So it's less, the Proverbs are less God saying, don't jump off cliffs, as it is God saying, in light of the law of gravity... It will not go well for those who jump off cliffs. God invites us to live 
according to reality. And when we listen to him, we find life. So we're going to look at Proverbs 15, 16. This is not a command about money or wealth. Not that commands about money and wealth are bad or unhelpful. God gives us plenty of those, but that's not what we have here. So look with me at Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. We have here a statement of fact and an invitation to live in light of it. It's called wisdom. When we live in light of what's true and real, it's called foolishness when we don't. So let's spend a few minutes talking about what Proverbs 15, 16 means, and then we'll finish with a few minutes of talking about how we can respond to it. So um, first thing I think we need to do is make two connections and um, so to help us understand this proverb. So the first connection we need to look at is the connection between having a little and fear of the Lord. And then the second one is the connection between treasure and trouble. So uh, first one, better is a little with the fear of the Lord. Let's start with that connection. What's the relationship here between having little and fear of the Lord? Uh, now, in case you haven't been around as we've taught through Proverbs, or in case you've forgotten, um, Proverbs talks a lot about the fear of the Lord. And when it does, it's getting at this idea with living as God as our singular reference point in our life. Uh, nothing makes sense apart from him. Everything and everyone else takes a back seat to him. And no part of our lives is seen as unaffected by him or unaccountable to him. He is the one we fear. He is the one we trust. He is the one we worship. He is the one we belong to. In other words, he is our God. Now, if you know your Bible or if you know your heart, you know that there are many competing gods out there. Things other than God that lobby for our fear, for our trust, for our worship, for our sense of belonging. And the Bible calls these false gods. And there is no false god named as clearly and explicitly in the Bible as the false god of money. Money promises to provide for us, to protect us, and to pamper us. And the more of it we have, the more of those things it will do. So we devote ourselves to the pursuit of it. We make sacrifices to obtain it, and we fear when we don't have enough of it. Because in money, we trust. So if we want to understand the connection between having just a little money, just a few possessions, and fearing the Lord, we must start with this ever-present reality that money and possessions are always lobbying for your worship, your heart, your fear. Jesus warns us specifically of this danger in his well-known Sermon on the Mount, where he tells us not to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where... They can get stolen or go bad, but instead to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Did I say that backwards? You know what I mean. That's totally, that's totally okay at 40, by the way. 
Here's what Jesus said. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Notice that's another statement of fact. It's not, don't serve two masters. It's, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters who are seeking to lead you in opposite directions. The God of heaven is pulling your heart toward himself and eternal joy. The God of money is seeking to keep your heart chained down to the earth with fleeting pleasures. Can't serve both. Where will your treasure be? And that's a crucial question because, as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this isn't just a proverb about money. This short, understated statement of reality has your heart, your worship, and your eternity in view. But Jesus goes on from there to show how the fear of the Lord and having little are actually a blessed combination. Read on with me. It says, You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So how can the words better and a little ever go together in a sentence? It's like the most un-American combination imaginable, right? Because, as Jesus says, and as Psalm 34 says, those who fear the Lord will have no lack. We have a heavenly Father carefully and attentively looking after our every need. What is better than that? Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. Second connection we want to look at is the connection between treasure and trouble. Now let's recognize first that this proverb is not scolding you if you have a job, if you get a paycheck, if you have a home or a car or a savings account. There is wisdom in having things like those. But by pointing out the connection between great treasure and trouble, this proverb actually helpfully reminds us to be wary of thoughtless accumulation of wealth. To question what is altogether left unquestioned in our culture and in our world. 
We are discipled by this world to believe that more wealth, more money, more stuff equals better life. Turn on your TV for five minutes and you will be indoctrinated. But the way of wisdom that our God sets before us is to stop and question things like this. Is more really better? Are we actually moving closer to that which is truly life as we accumulate more and more material wealth, more and more material possessions? Is cluttering our homes, cluttering our minds, filling storage units, filling iCloud storage units, is that actually contributing to our joy? Or is it perhaps contributing to our misery? Is it making us more happy or is it making us more overwhelmed? Is it bringing us more peace or is it bringing us more panic, more turmoil? Are we better off or are we less mentally stable, less emotionally stable? Are we relationally connected or relationally distant? Is more really better? What if less is better? Never seen that commercial, have you? I've never seen the commercial that says, relax people, you probably have everything you need. (laughs) This shouldn't be too big of a surprise for us because we're very accustomed to this idea that the way of the world often leads us in the opposite direction of where we want to go. The opposite direction of where God tells us we should go. If we know anything about the The kingdom of God, we know that it's upside down compared to the kingdom of this world. But if we're honest, this one's hard to get 100% on board with. This one's kind of hard to to really wrap our hearts around. Maybe not at, at an intellectual level, but certainly at a heart level. How am I really supposed to believe that a bigger house won't make me happier. Seriously. How am I supposed to believe that a newer car won't deliver what it's promising to deliver? Honestly. The tricky thing is that God's word never says a bigger house has nothing good to offer me. Right? Never says it doesn't. And your experience probably tells you the same. But what it does say And what we will do well to pay attention to is this connection between increased treasure and increased trouble. That's kind of hard to deny. There is truth in what one great big poet has notoriously said, mo' money, mo' problems. More things, more possessions, more to take care of, more to fix, more to upgrade, More to clean, more to protect, more to ensure, more to worry about, more to lose, more to replace. I love the story that's told of John Wesley, a Christian brother who lived back in the 1700s. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I love the story. Uh, it's, It's said that one day John Wesley was away from his home sharing the gospel out on his horse, and somebody came running up to him saying, John, your house has burned down. Your house has burned down. And John looks at that messenger and says, "Um, 
First of all, my house didn't burn down because the house I live in belongs to God. I don't own a house. Second of all, good, less to worry about. And then he kept sharing the gospel. I don't know if it's true, but I want to align my heart with that story. Don't you? Let's assume it was true. There are men like that. And we live in one of the most consumerist cultures that has ever existed in all mankind, right? The history of mankind. And assuming that the goal of all this consumerism was more happiness, better quality of life, we probably have enough data at this point to conclude that it hasn't worked. More is not necessarily better. If we're honest, we'd have an easier time arguing that more stuff actually equals more anxiety, more depression, more isolation, more loneliness, more workaholism, more burnout, more addiction, more hopelessness, more mental illness, more suicide, and the list goes on with other not good words that we get more of. And the overarching point that we have in front of us today is that money It's not that money can't do certain favorable things for you. The point is, there's something even better than what money can do for you. And our God always wants better for his people. Do you know that? Do you really believe that? He is relentlessly committed to the ever-increasing joy of his children. And today, as we pay attention to merely one sentence that he has spoken to us, we have an invitation to more of what he has in store for us. An invitation to more of that which is truly life. So, there are our two connections, little and fear the Lord, treasure and trouble. Hopefully that helps us understand a little bit more of the Proverbs. So let's just spend a few minutes together talking about how do we respond to Proverbs fifteen sixteen. Like I said, I think there's an invitation here for us. Regardless of whether you consider yourself someone with little or someone with great treasure. I think there's a bit of an invitation perhaps in two different directions for us. So let's look at those together. First direction, we have an invitation to contentment. It's an invitation to contentment. What is contentment? Short answer is contentment is what your heart is longing for. It's why we accumulate so much. We are hoping to find contentment, satisfaction. Sadly, even in the wealthiest places on earth, contentment is hard to come by. That should make us think, even among Christians. Way back in the 1600s, a man named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. What a shame if it's true that contentment, even among Christians, is rare. Here are two little gems from that book. First, a definition of Christian contentment. Here's what he says. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So contentment is that 
is that the inward peace and quiet that is found only in the soul that knows how perfectly he or she is constantly being fathered, no matter what comes, no matter what goes. There's no panic, no consuming impulse to accumulate or to look for life or satisfaction beyond what is already freely given. And then secondly, there's a brief, here's a brief hint on how we get there from Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, so this is the art of contentment. Not to seek to add to our circumstances, but to subtract from our desires. Now this will sound like straight up gobbledygook to anyone who's living according to the gospel of materialism. He says, contentment will not come by having more things, but by keeping your desires in check. We have it ingrained in us that more is better, that we're always just shy of having enough. Or as one of the richest men who ever lived once said, when asked how much money is enough, he said, just a little more. So the reason God's word gives us statements of reality like Proverbs 15, 6 is because we are tragically prone to believe lies like that. I would guess that most of us in this room believe the lie of materialism more than we think we do and more than we wish we do. That just a little more will be enough. Just a little bigger house. Just a little bigger paycheck. Just a little newer car. Just a little bigger TV. Just a little more will be enough. But we keep never arriving at enough. What if our problem isn't that we have too little, but that, like Burroughs says, we desire too much? Let's turn to the Apostle Paul here for a minute. Feel free to turn with me to 1 Timothy 6, or it should appear on the screen above me if that's easier. As you're turning there, let me just point out something about how privileged we are, where and when we live right now. Um, if we lived 2,500 years ago, we would have Proverbs 15, 16, Solomon's wisdom. Excellent. If we'd lived in Jesus' day, we would have Solomon's proverb and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you. But living today, we have Solomon's proverb, we have the Sermon on the Mount, and we have the Apostle Paul's teaching, who all spoke about the same thing using different words in different contexts. We do not have too little teaching. Let's make sure we do not have too little living. Paul had something to say about keeping our desires in check. Look with me at 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. He's writing to his young friend Timothy, and he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Pause there for a second. Food and clothing. Same two things Jesus mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we live in a different climate than Jesus and Paul did, right? So I think it's fair to add shelter to our list, and um, and then we can stop there. But in Illinois, I think we can say, if you have food and clothing and shelter with these, we will be content. We are not extremely high-maintenance people, apparently. 
If we have food, clothing, and shelter, we can be content. What a revolutionary idea. Is that even possible? What would it look like to even take that seriously? To test that theory out. Is there a chance that the more we accumulate, the further we're actually moving from the possibility of contentment? Paul goes on. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Feels worth keeping our desires in check. All kinds of evils wander away from the faith, pierce themselves with many pangs. These are the outcomes of those who desire to be rich, who love and crave more and more and more, and who have refused the invitation to contentment. We have to keep our desires in check. They will go out of control if we let them. And we're very accustomed to letting them. How many people take their desires seriously like that? doesn't even feel wrong most of the time to let our desires run free. Well, part of how we do that is what we're doing right now, right? It's just taking honest inventory of the world, of people we know, and of our own lives. How is this endless pursuit of more really working out? If we don't take the time to evaluate, we're just going to keep running in the same direction, believing the same lies as everyone else. But if we slow down, Pay attention to our lives, our hearts, and God's word. It will be hard for us to deny that we are living for a lie and that God may actually know what he's talking about when he says things like, better is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Or when Jesus says, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Maybe the creator of our souls is actually onto something. This is probably a good moment to just pause and do a little self-reflection. How would you evaluate your own personal contentment? Do you find yourself often anxious about your life? That you're not going to have the things that you need? Well, if that's you, receive Jesus' words about the constant care of your Heavenly Father. The steadfast love of God for you is more security than any amount of money could ever bring. Or maybe for you, it's not anxiety that's the dominant thing, but just this ever-present sense that you just need a little bit more to be happy, to be satisfied. If that's you, receive Christ's promise that your life does not improve 
in proportion to the abundance of your possessions. That there's a deeper and more lasting joy that's offered to those who lay up their treasures in heaven than those who stack them up here on earth. How would your spending habits be different if you took these words more to heart? Your financial planning. Jesus is the wisest financial planner that ever existed. This world is not your home, so store up your treasures in the place you're going to live for infinity years. Sound advice. Where do you need to question your own desires and make sure they're not actually leading you in the opposite direction you're intending to go? Here's one simple idea. Next time you're about to buy something, stop and ask yourself this question. What is this really going to cost me? Not just the dollars. What else is this going to cost me? How much time and attention and worry and concern? I find that to be a helpful question. Proverbs fifteen sixteen is an invitation to contentment. Because those who fear the Lord will lack nothing other than all the extra trouble that great treasure brings. That leads us to what I think is an invitation in a second but related direction. It's an invitation to all of us to pursue contentment, regardless of how much we have. And for most, if not all of us, it's an invitation to generosity. This is an invitation to generosity for those of us who have more than we really need, which is probably most of us. An invitation to generosity. Now, before I say anything more, bear this in mind. Is God giving us these words because he wants guilt for you tonight? Is he saying these things because he wants shame and condemnation to consume you today? Is that what he's up to? No. Very explicitly, he has told us these things because he wants what? Better for you. He says it's better to have this than that. It's very important that we receive these words with a right understanding of the heart from which they, have, they flow. Satan can twist these words and make you think wrongly about the Father's heart for you. He's always seeking to do that. Be on guard. Pay attention to what God actually says. So what does wisdom say to those who must grapple with the reality that treasure and trouble tend to grow together and we've probably got more than we need? Well, the scripture's repeated answer to that question is really one thing. Give it away. Give it away. Get rid of it. Be generous. Provide for the needs of others. Use what you have to care for others who don't have as much. We had all kinds of fun talking about this last week. It bears a few more minutes of reflection. Those who have significant wealth, we have to really grapple with this, right? Because most days, I don't feel like that's me, right? Until I take my eyes off myself and look at how most of the world and even people in my community live. Those who have significant wealth should not feel guilty or condemned about being wealthy, but we should feel accountable for it. We should feel the weight of responsibility as those who have been entrusted with much. Let's pick back up at 1 Timothy 6, 
We can see how Paul moved from a call to contentment to a call to generosity. We left off at verse 11. Let's skip ahead and pick up at verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul goes on, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Remember, God offers us wisdom so that we can avoid avoidable trouble and take hold of that which is truly life. Here's how you do it if you find yourself with more than a little. Give it away. No surprise. Before Paul gives us a call to action, it's a call to the heart, right? Don't be haughty, as though what you have somehow makes you superior to those with less. Don't set your hope on riches, as if they are trustworthy and infallible. But instead, remember that it is God who is the unfailing source of all that you have, and the one who cares more about your joy than you even do yourself. Start with your heart. That's what what Paul just said there is kind of longhand for fear of the Lord, in case you're keeping track. And then, with a properly positioned heart, Paul goes on. Here's what you can do with your stuff. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Use what God has entrusted to you for the benefit of other people. Resist the constant temptation for newer, nicer, bigger, better, more. Be a wise steward of God's money. And so send treasures on ahead of you to a place where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. Generosity is to be one of the defining marks of the Christian. It's a defiant posture in a world that has bought the lie that more is better and money is God. Remember how Jesus defined generosity when he stood there that day watching that poor old woman put her last two coins in the treasury box? All those rich people are putting in their large sums and she comes along and gives her last two coins and Jesus says, that's it. That's generosity. It's not so much how much you put in that makes you generous, it's how much you have left after you've put in. According to Jesus. What a crazy, beautiful, upside-down kingdom. And we're invited to get in on the fun. What if we started to take even more seriously the invitation to run hard in the opposite direction that the rest of the world is running? To live lives marked by radical generosity, fueled by radical contentment. How are you positioned right now to take greater hold of that which is truly life by doing good with what you have? If anything is coming to mind right now, that may be the Holy Spirit prompting you, giving you direction. This is probably worth some time and attention this week with that question. How has God positioned me right now to take greater hold of that which is truly life by being generous? 
by doing good with what I have. It's worth conversations around the dinner table. That's worth conversations in your small group. It's worth conversations before the Lord. We are invited to participate more and more fully in a kingdom whose forerunner and king set the pace by, though he was in the form of God, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because that was our Savior's posture when he lived his life here on this earth, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then so that those who bow the knee to Jesus would get up and live likewise, would follow his lead and say, I live for that upside down kingdom. I'm going to live a life rich in good works, always ready to share. A life of generosity fueled by a life of contentment. That's who we are, brothers and sisters. That's who we get to be. Free from the bondage of living for something that will never deliver what it promises. And we're going to finish our time together tonight by taking the Lord's Supper. If you're serving, please come forward.